Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. It's good to be here. Uh, it's a real honor to, to speak here. Um, and if you've been a student here, uh, I can say with you that it's, uh, it's been a privilege to, uh, to be at Southeastern now for two degrees. Uh, first my MDiv and, and now my THM. So uh, big thanks to the, to the faculty and to the staff here for, um, for making a great school. So we'll find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians 5 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, uh, it should be up on the screen. And we'll start in verse 12. It says this, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. As Dr. Marita said, I'm originally from Buffalo, uh, New York, and I'm uh, not from a, a churchly family. Uh, I have good parents and want to honor them. They, they worked really hard to raise my brother and I to give us a, a good childhood. I was a pretty decent kid growing up. I, uh, I played sports. Um, got involved in a lot of the, the same stuff that kids without the Lord fall into. And uh, by the end of high school really is where stuff got really bumpy. Uh, earlier that year I had taken steroids to get stronger and faster. And during my first week of football practice, I had a pretty catastrophic injury to my hip. And like setbacks due to all of us, that, um, that put me in a downward spiral. I basically self-medicated with, with drugs to get by the, the end of the year. And somehow I graduated with help perhaps. And um, it really wasn't until my, my second semester in college where things really began to change. Uh, I decided that um, I wanted to make a difference. And so I, uh, I moved into an apartment with three guys from my high school uh, football team. And basically this house was a, a, a party pothouse uh, near our, our campus. And um, in the midst of all that, I determined I wanted to, uh, to make a difference in the world. So I ran for some student government positions. I got a, uh, a job at a, a local restaurant and bar that was close to the, uh, to the campus. And um, things were really going well in my mind. Things were going uh, quite well. And that's about when the Lord really started to break into my life. 
to show me my sin and show me my need for a savior. And basically, it's a, it's a crazy story, but um, the three roommates that were living in that house were, were basically nominal Roman Catholics. And I was a, I was a nothing at that point. And so one day we, we started talking about the differences between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. And somehow that led to a discussion about the end times, about eschatology. And somehow that led us to go to the local blockbuster and rent a movie called Left Behind. Um, so if you were hoping for a refresher on what that movie is, uh, it's a particular movie from a, a particular theological viewpoint and it depicts the end of the world from, uh, from a particular point of view. Uh, there's a lot of artistic license. And um, the, the Lord really used that movie to interest me in Christianity and really to scare me uh, as people were popping out of the plane and disappearing. And um, that, that, those series of events led my roommates and I to go to a, a Christian church for the first time and to hear the gospel and to see community that, that loved one another, to see, to see God's grace in, in flesh, embodied in people. And for the next six months, we kind of had one foot in our newfound faith and one foot in the world. And through uh, a, a series of pretty crazy events, the Lord saved me, saved my roommates. He, he changed my heart. He changed their hearts. I've never been the same. And he flipped that house, gave us new life. Uh, my one roommate's a, a church planner in Virginia. The other one is a police officer. The other one's a, a physical therapist. And um, just say that God's grace is sufficient. It's real. It changed my life. And I give him praise for that this morning. And it was that topic, that that discussion about the return of Jesus. It was that, that doctrinal focus. This is the topic that Paul really focused a lot of his attention on in First and Second Thessalonians. Paul and his team had experienced the transforming power of the gospel, and they were committed to bringing that gospel everywhere. But God had specific plans for the, the province of Macedonia, so Paul receives a vision to take the gospel to the cities of Macedonia. And so his, him and his team go there, they preach Christ, and by God's grace, a church is formed. So, so like many of us, God called many of the Thessalonians out of legalism and out of worshiping empty gods. Within about a month, things heat up in that city, and so Paul and his team, they get kicked out. A few months goes by, Paul seems concerned about his church plant and he sends his protege Timothy, his partner in ministry to check up on them. Timothy comes back and he brings a generally positive report about the church there, but there was some confusion about the second coming of Christ. They were asking themselves questions like, what happens to Christians who are already dead when the Lord returns? And they were asking questions like, when will he come? Perhaps the, the Thessalonians were wondering if Jesus would return in their lifetimes and if they were to die before he were to return, would they, would they actually make it? Would, would they receive that end time salvation? 
And so for Paul, it seems like in writing this letter, if he could help them to think rightly about the gospel, if, if he could help them to think about the good news, which includes some specifics about the return of Christ, then their lives as the church, their lives as Christians would be ordered well. It would reflect the truth about Christ. It would testify well to the whole truth, the whole picture of the good news. And this is always, it seems, to be the pattern we see in Scripture over and over. The gospel brings us together as the church, but it also shapes us as the church. A right understanding of the gospel leads to a right understanding of how we ought to live our lives as Christians and as the church. Seeing the beauty of God in the face of Christ each day gives us the passion each day to live for God and to live for Christ. And knowing again and again each day that we're secure, that we're loved, that we're, we're kept in Christ until the very end gives us the, the confidence again and again to trust him and to obey him. And so Paul, he closes this first letter and he gives practical instruction on what it means in part to be a healthy gospel church, what it means to be part of the family. He's clarified some doctrines of the gospel and now he's, he's making application from the gospel. So John Stott actually calls this section of scripture Christian community or how to be a gospel church. He says of verse 12 and 13 that it teaches us how pastors and people should regard and relate to one another. Verses 14 and 15, Stott says these verses show the fellowship of the local church and about the responsibilities of church members to care for each other. In verses 16 and on, Stott says, Paul turns our attention to the church's public worship, what should be included in it, and in particular, how the word of God evokes the worship of God. I think that's a pretty good outline and it gives us a, a bird's eye view of the passage. So let's, let's look at the scripture. So number one, the apostle, he begins by telling us something about leaders. He says in verse 12 and 13, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now broadly, this, this command to respect those who labor among you and to esteem them in love, it applies to everyone who's over us in the Lord, those who disciple us, those who mentor us, those who teach us, those who might help us to grow in the faith. But specifically, it seems like Paul's speaking about elders or pastors in a church. He doesn't use the term elders here specifically, but notice that the three things these leaders do, they labor among you, they're, they're over you, and they admonish you. These are the, the three jobs that elders or pastors have in a local church. Now, good, good elders are obviously, they're hard workers. Paul compares them elsewhere to soldiers or hardworking farmers. Uh, good elders, they live out their callings as shepherds, as guides, as, as servants. But they possess a special authority from God that's derived from the scripture, that's derived from the congregation. So based on that reason, we should respect and esteem them very highly in love. And this is, this is really important in the life of a gospel church. Good pastors and even good missionaries and good professors, they work really hard. 
and they often work very hard behind the scenes. And in our sinfulness, it's very difficult often to respect those who are over us in the Lord. We, we can often become suspicious of their motives for us, or we can develop sinful expectations about what we're entitled to from our leaders. But the apostle tells us that we should thank God for our leaders, those who care for us, those who shepherd us, those who disciple us, those who mentor us, and we should do our best to respect them and to esteem them in love. Now, this might be, be an older couple in your life, uh, perhaps like Apollos had with Priscilla and Aquila, or perhaps it's a, a teacher or a, a mentor uh, like Timothy had with Paul. These types of people, they deserve our love, they deserve our trust, they deserve our thankfulness. We ought to receive them as gifts from God, as servants and blessings in our lives. I was reminded of this uh, in D.C. I was in a hotel last week sometime, and uh, I was playing a message on my phone from, from an elder at our church, and uh, lo and behold, a church planter from another state overheard this message, and he looked at me with some, with some shock, and he said, wow, that, that guy really has you. He, he really cares for you. And um, it hit me how familiar I can become in having good elders and, and having good pastors who care for me and who care for the church and who work hard for the sake of the gospel and how deficient I am often in showing respect and love. And so if you serve as a, as a ministry worker, as a pastor, as an elder in this room, I, I want to say thank you for your hard work, uh, for your love for us. Thank you for your faithfulness. I thank God that he notices you better than I ever could. Which brings us really to the flip side of this command that we should note sometimes we won't be respected as ministers. Like if Paul had to tell them to respect their leaders, to respect their, their elders, it's likely there was some deficiency in giving respect. Perhaps the leaders in Thessalonica weren't being esteemed because the church there was too dependent on an outside apostle. And we know that this problem still exists today. It's, it's even intensified with the internet. You can log on your computer and watch a, a preacher or watch a YouTube video from another church and become very dependent on something outside of your local church. But we should never really enter the ministry for respect or love. It's, it's definitely not guaranteed. Uh, this profession I've learned more and more isn't often respected. But the good news again this morning is if, if we don't feel respected as a pastor or an elder or as a, as, a, as a ministry worker, as a teacher, let's remember that God really does love us deeply. He treasures us in Christ. And let's pray that that would define us, that that would lead us to work hard for others, that that would lead us to work hard for the sake of the gospel in the world without conditions. 
He adds, verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. The church ought to love one another. The church ought to care for one another. So maybe there was some disconnects in the church here. Maybe he's addressing again uh, a potential disconnect between elders and members or leadership in the church. And maybe he wants peace, but we don't necessarily know from the rest of the letter. But human experience would tell us that so often peace is absent in relationships. So often peace is absent in the church, and maybe it was absent in this church. And the scriptures tell us that the root of the lack of peace is often in us. James 4, your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. But we need peace. We need to fight for peace. We need to strive for, for peace, especially in the church, because without peace, we'll become ineffective in mission and, and in our purpose. Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. The world will believe the Father sent me when they see your unity. Peace is essential. It's essential to the health of a church. It's essential to the health of mission. It's essential to the health of the gospel going forward. We're planting a, a church, as Dr. Marita mentioned, Lord willing, in Washington, D.C. sometime next year. And this issue, this command, we're taking very seriously. It's at the, it's at the forefront of what we're doing. More than logistics or church names or all that other stuff, we're striving to learn how to love each other, to have unity in the spirit, to fight for peace between all of us. And this, this means realizing constantly that our passions and our desires are at war within us. It means putting those desires to death and instead daily going to our Lord and receiving his peace. And this peace, this Christian peace, I've realized it, it doesn't mean sentimentality, it, it doesn't mean passivity, but it feels more like a contentment, a genuine thankfulness for others. It feels like a trust in God over all things, and not only over all things, but in the lives of others, that, that he's got this. It's an ability to quickly forgive. It's an ability to be resting and to be abiding in the Lord in our daily lives. And so a gospel church, a healthy church, is marked by this, this internal peace, this harmony, which without can really hurt the credibility of a church. In verse 14, notice the apostle, he exhorts us to be patient counselors. He gives us three commands. Verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. The Thessalonians had struggling Christians in their midst. So do we, and so are we, when you stop and think about it. We, we live in the already but not yet. Our world has seen the Messiah and his church is established, but we know that things are still broken. His kingdom hasn't fully come. But when he returns, he'll put things back into order. And his kingdom will fully come. 
All this said really another way is we've been saved in eternity past. We're being saved in the present and one day we will be saved in the future. Yet Christians can fall into stuff and that's why we need to be continually saved. They and, and we, we, we can become idle or faint-hearted or weak. And it's interesting to note that when it comes to troubled Christians, these three kinds, they generally exist in every community. The idle or the undisciplined, the faint-hearted or the one whose soul has become small, and the weak, those who aren't well. And notice that to each of these types of people, Paul has a particular instruction on how to deal with them. And it's all to be done with patience. For the idol patiently admonish them. That, that means to firmly, to earnestly advise them to take on appropriate responsibilities and to exert appropriate effort. To admonish someone is to, to essentially hold up the word of God to them and, and say, this is the standard of the Christian life. This is what we're to do. This is what we're not to do. For the faint-hearted, we're to patiently encourage them to seek with God's help to give them a beating heart again. And for the weak, we're to help them. That might mean the spiritually weak or the, the physically weak or both. Whichever it means, we should, we should be patiently and actually trying to help those who are not well to find strength. We should notice, too, that all of these responsibilities are not just for pastors. They're not just for elders, but they're for the whole church. They're for the whole family, every Christian to every Christian. The church is a family. It's a household of God. And this all goes back to the fact that we're the body of Christ. And we live in a messy world that has not yet been fully redeemed. So when we see a brother or when we see a sister slipping, it's not loving, it's not Christian to just let them go, to not reach out and try to steady them or warn them of danger. This isn't just the pastor's job, but it's the job of every member of the body of Christ. He adds another command for the whole church. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This seems to be a clear echo of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that we shouldn't seek individual, personal retaliation and revenge for sins committed against us, but instead we should be forgiving constantly. We should be seeking to do good to those who wrong us. Now, the, the use of military force by governments, the, the, the idea of self-defense, fleeing from evil, these are different topics. They don't seem to be prohibited by this, but I think what's being said here is that Christians should be watching out that other Christians are constantly renouncing their desire for retaliation or vengeance, leaving room for the wrath of God, and instead encouraging other Christians to have a spirit of forbearance, to have a willingness to constantly forgive sin and to seek to do good. This is what a, a gospel church, this is what a healthy church looks like, a, a church whose members, whose leaders are constantly forgiving one another and are seeking the genuine welfare of each other. And notice we're to do good to one another, but also to everyone, like even those outside of the church, 
were to do good to. Like they were being persecuted, but they were to do good to those even outside of their church plant, even outside of their community. Now, of course, that meant sharing the gospel. Of course, that meant making disciples, but it also meant seeking the genuine welfare of their community. I believe that Christ wants to proclaim his word through us, the church. I I, I genuinely believe he's interested in making disciples through us, his church, but I also think that he's interested in doing good through us. And I may hold a a minority view on this point, but I I think that content discussion is not the only ministry of the church. So is caring for orphans and widows. So is fighting for the poor and those who are broken and downcast. In our final section, it looks like in verse 16, Paul's now going to turn his attention to the life of the church or the life of the individual Christian. Now, to be sure, these, these commands uh, seem to have a, a definite corporate application, like when the, when the church gathers for public worship, they should be rejoicing together. When the, when the church comes together, they, they should most definitely have a, a, have a, a spirit of unceasing prayer when the, when the church comes together, they should be giving thanks in all circumstances. When the church comes together, they, should, they shouldn't despise prophecy. They should be testing it. And when the whole church comes together, they should most definitely be abstaining from evil. But these also apply to the individual Christian in daily life. The, the rejoice always command reminds us that it pleases God that we're happy in God, that we're genuinely valuing him as the bottom line in our lives, to, to consider constantly in a, in a worshipful state the grace and the mercy and the peace and the love of God in Christ for us. This is a command for our hearts and our minds to, to constantly be mastered by Jesus. The, the command to pray without ceasing. This is a reminder that as, as Christians, our dependence ought to, to continually be on God throughout the day. We should pray formally, we should pray often, but our posture should be one of constantly needing fuel, constantly seeking mercy and, and grace and the Spirit's power for life and mission. Give thanks in all circumstances. This no doubt must have been hard for the Thessalonians, a persecuted minority church. And it's hard for any of us. It takes knowing that God is sovereign and knows what's best for our lives. Our circumstances are ordered by him. He's sovereign and praise God that he uses our bad even for our good. Even if you can't see it yet, I'm learning more and more to thank God for the setbacks and trials in my own life. It's a beautiful thing to see that he's still good and sovereign even over unmet expectations. It's quite amazing to see the goodness of the Lord in not receiving unspoken expectations and beliefs about where 
we should be in our lives. These are all more occasions to praise God. Calvin said, for what is fitter or more suitable for pacifying us than when we learn that God embraces us in Christ so tenderly that he turns to our advantage and welfare everything that befalls us. Praise God that he's sovereign over even our our suffering, our setbacks, our pain, and that these are more occasions to thank him for his wisdom, his power, his plan. Finally, Paul tells them in verse 19, do not quench the spirit. That is, don't be insensitive to the spirit. Don't do things that would resist the spirit in the life of the church, in the life of others, and in the life of of the community. And he gives two examples here that are actions that can extinguish the work of the Spirit. Verse 20, despising prophecies, and verse 22, forms of evil. Now, the logical connection between why doing evil can quench the Spirit is is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, to do evil is to do sin. It's to, to, to not walk in step with the Spirit, which is not only dangerous individually, but it's dangerous for the life of the church. Uh, a church that's doing evil and extinguishing the work of the Spirit and His power is a church that's on its way out. No pulse, no life. But the issue of despising prophecy is a little bit more complex. I was riding along with, uh, with Mark Dever in his van last week for the first time, and uh, we were talking about the topic of elders and uh, how many services a church should do each week, and uh, it, got, it got pretty quiet for a, an awkward second, and so I thought of something really quick to, to ask him about, and so I asked him about prophecy. And um, he gave me some great points, uh, recommended a, a book by Grudem, wrote a book on this, and he basically said that it's hard to get really comprehensive about, about this topic. It's a tough topic, and I tend to agree. It, it seems like uh, prophecy in the New Testament is God bringing to mind something that lines up with his word that you otherwise wouldn't have thought of for the sake of encouraging and building up other people. Uh, it's most definitely not on par with with uh, authoritative scripture or inspirational uh, scripture. Uh, It's not a thus saith the Lord. Uh, That's why you're supposed to test it. That's why you're supposed to uh, determine if it seems good. And if it's in accordance with biblical truth, then you endorse it. Uh, An example is in preaching. If you preach often, this is commonly what you're praying for uh, when you ask the Lord to give you the words or when you ask the Lord to, to give you a special ability to help people to hear what they need to hear. That seems to be prophecy working in the act of, of preaching. But if you've been involved in the, the life of the church for any amount of, of time, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen this happen, perhaps in a non-preaching setting, uh, this gift is often, it's abused. Uh, someone walks up to you and they say, uh, I had a dream that, that uh, your wife's going to die in, in childbearing. Or uh, the Lord is telling me that uh, you, should, you should move here and, and there. Uh, I had a dream about this and that. And um, it seems like people 
often will use this gift. They'll, they'll deliver their thoughts and they'll put us in impossible situations. And enough of that eventually will lead us to put up our defenses against uh, all application of, of God's truth. But Paul here tells us we're not supposed to do that. Instead of putting up a wall, we should test prophecies. We should, we should test the, the teachings and the books and the, and the music we're listening to to see if it lines up with God's truth, lest we extinguish his spirit and resist his spirit in our lives and in the life of the church. And the spirits, he, he's our helper. And without his, his power and his life, you don't have a, a gospel church. You have a dead church. But the good news again this morning is that if you're in Christ, if, if you're in his spirit, you've been given his spirit who gives you life. He's tr- saving you and he's transforming you. And Paul closes on that note with this, with this pastoral prayer. It says in verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is great news this morning. Uh, These commands, they, they help us to understand practically how to be a gospel church, how to be a a gospel Christian. But in our salvation, we've been saved and we've not been destined for wrath through our Lord Jesus. In our, in our salvation, we're, we're being saved and we're being transformed even today by our Lord Jesus. And because of this salvation, one day we'll be completely saved and be with God forever. Until that day, I pray that we'd be given the strength by his spirit to live lives that please him as his gospel church, to listen to the voice of his son through his word, to know him, to follow him, to live out his truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. You tell us it's living and active. It's sharp. It pierces us. It convicts us. It exposes us. Lord, we, we know that in and of ourselves we don't have the strength to obey your commands, but by your, your spirit, by your power, by looking to our Lord Jesus, you give us the strength and you give us the perspective, you give us the endurance to follow through, to, to know you, to serve to go into all the world and to make disciples. Lord, we pray that um, you would remind us of these truths more and more, that we would be leading healthy churches, we would be members in healthy churches that would be striving to look more and more like you by the power that is in us. Lord, we give you thanks for this great school, for your work here. We pray that uh, you would continue to bless us in our studies as we uh, prep for exams and finish our projects and papers, Lord, that um, 
you would remind us to, to respect those who are working for our good. Lord, to, um, to watch out for one another. And Lord, to continue knowing you and being loved by you and following you all the days of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.